The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Robert Martin. He is the director of the Food System Policy Program at Johns Hopkins University's Center for a Livable Future based in Baltimore, Maryland. Prior to joining the center, Mr. Martin worked on Capitol Hill as a family farm advocate with the National Farmers Union. He also worked for the Pew Charitable Trust, where he served as a senior officer on the Pew Environment Group and as executive director of the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production. Mr. Martin worked closely with the staff at the center and other experts from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health on the commission, which was a joint venture of Pew and Johns Hopkins. Ultimately, the commission published eight technical reports and one incredibly important report titled Putting Meat on the Table, Industrial Farm Animal Production in America. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Welcome, Mr. Martin. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you for inviting me, Melinda. I really enjoy the opportunity. Well, it's my pleasure to bring voices to our listeners who have studied how we eat and how the food gets to our plate and what we as eaters and as citizens can do to help drive a more sustainable food system, especially in light of the climate crisis that we are facing and generations ahead of us are facing. Now, I have a quote from you. You say that food has become the social issue of our time and that you were lucky enough to participate in an effort to shine a bright spotlight on one aspect of the food system that is in crisis. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, in looking back at some of the other social movements that I remember and participated in some to some extent, observing the uh, civil rights movement when I was a younger person, continuing today, I was an active participant in the anti-Vietnam War Protests, And I think you look at food now, it's an organizing issue. It's an issue that is of particular interest to younger people. And the social aspect of food is oftentimes overlooked and not focused on as some of the other aspects. So it's really an issue that is motivating people. People are more and more concerned about the quality of food, how it's produced, is it sustainably produced, what impacts does it have on their personal health, on public health writ large, and on the environment. So it's the progress is a little bit uneven, I would say, and I think some of that's due to the, the power and the strength of the status quo industries that dominate food production and processing in the country. But there's steady progress towards a more sustainable system, I believe. Yeah, and I agree with you with regard to your observation about younger generations really paying more attention today than they have in the past. Although I am distressed when I see the kinds of messages that are infiltrating our land-grant universities, for example, 
And with so much of our public institutions dependent more and more on private financial streams, the messages get a little blurry. In fact, I was recently at the Capitol in the state of Missouri, where I live, and I was shocked to see agricultural economists from University Extension speaking in favor of legislation that would expand these factory farms in our state. And it's very distressful to me thinking that young people are getting this rhetoric as if it is somehow the truth that we need factory farms to feed the world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's of deep concern. During the Pew Commission study, one of the things we noticed and we spoke to was the need for more public funding of research, because when they're taxpayer-funded research, it doesn't have a bias like research funded by the industry. There's been a dramatic decline in taxpayer-funded research at land-grant schools and just generally in sciences. So what's filled that reduction or that decline has been industry money. For example, the Poultry Center at University of Arkansas, the Pew Commission visited there, and it's euphemistically called Tyson University because so much funding comes from Tyson, the company. And we heard there was a lot of concern from mid-level faculty doing research that so much money was coming from the industry, and there was pressure to come up with a specific conclusion that would promote the business model of that sector. In this case, we were looking at the industrial animal sector. So it's a very deep concern. And I would say that we don't need the factory farm system to feed the world. Number one, it's such a myth that is troubling that the United States doesn't even feed ourselves. And and to say that we need this system in place to feed the world is really misrepresenting the capacity that we have. And it is frustrating. So There's been research done at Iowa State that shows a rotational grazing system reintegrating the animals into the landscape yields just as much grain as the conventional cropping system. And the center's recently done a study that shows the global north really does not need the type of animal protein in its diet that it currently consumes, that uh, USDA says we're we consume between eight and nine ounces of meat on average a day. And medical experts, health experts, suggest that we could do much better on no more than three ounces of meat a day. So if you look at the overconsumption, the global north and the global south, which is hurting for animal protein, that it is important for nutrition and neurological development and when children are young and to avoid stunting, which has long-term health consequences. It's really a world out of balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that the American Public Health Association recently called for a ban on new or expanded large-scale animal farms, also known as concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs, and we can refer to them as CAFOs henceforth. But what's so interesting is that this is not their first statement calling for a moratorium. And yet you would think that with the reams of data that we already have showing harms to the environment, harms to public health, now this new updated policy statement from the American public health community saying, stop this, this is not good. And yet, we still have a drive to build more. It's almost like our legislators don't hear these messages 
or perhaps they just can't listen because they need industry dollars to continue their tenure in office. Well, that's exactly the case. It's very difficult, and I'm very sympathetic of the the employment issues in, in metro rural America. I grew up in the Great Plains, and one of the things that really attracted me to work in politics before working for the Pew Commission and now at, at the School of Public Health is my concern about the decline of rural communities mm. and the economic dominance of the ag system by the large companies, whether it's grain companies, fertilizer companies, or animal animal ag companies, was really helping escalate a decline in rural communities that I found very troubling. And I was very fortunate through my life to work for politicians that, that tried to stem the tide of that. And and that's all kind of started to switch or change. And I think there's been a lot of misrepresentation. These large-scale animal operations, these CAFOs, are using the same rhetoric that was used to promote family farmers. You know, the images they like to conjure are still the the yeoman farmer that's independent and producing food for the world when it's really changed. And so that the misappropriation of those images and that rhetoric coupled with the political and economic power of the companies makes it very difficult. Our polling shows that when you talk to people about these issues, that they are very concerned about how these operations affect their health, the health of their neighbors, and the environment in which they live. And yet what we hear so often is that those intense smells that come for those offensive odors that come from factory farms, you've heard people say, I'm sure, oh, that's the smell of money. Yeah, I've ha- I have heard that. And actually, the, the intensive smell is really the, the smell of a public health problem. What you're smelling in most instances would be ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. And uh, both of those are, are very uh, harmful to uh, people's respiratory tracts, and and there have been some neurological disorders associated with hydrogen sulfide. And what you don't see and can't smell is the particulate matter that's suspended in those odors that it could be, I don't mean to be gross, but could be pulverized bits of dried feces and urine uh, that, is, that is emanating from the operations. And something that's very much unseen are the antibiotic-resistant bacteria that are in the air and in the water, the wastewater of these operations. We use far too many antibiotics that are important in human medicine in these animal operations. The FDA has tried to get control over this. The Federal Food and Drug Administration has tried to get control over this for about 20 years. And their last statistics from them from the FDA showed that antibiotic use went up by 9% last year in food animal operations. And the science is very clear. There's enough research, there's overwhelming amount of research that shows the antibiotics using these operations is leading to resistant bacteria that is linked to infections in people. So it's really, the, the odor is problematic. And I know that is the kind of the, the flippant response of the industry, oh, it smells like money to me. Well, it's, it's a very serious public health issue. Right. And I think that's a really good way to frame that. And I think it's interesting, you know, you grew up, you told me that you had grown up in Kansas, and 
It's interesting to me that you are able to connect those dots and see that what happened in rural communities, their economic demise, really, if you drive through many small towns, whether you're talking about Kansas or Iowa, throughout the heartland, you see downtowns that are boarded up. And you made the connection between what happened to farms and the industrialization of farms and the demise of those downtowns and those strong rural communities. How many other people living in those communities do indeed connect those dots? Well, I, I'm not enough, unfortunately. I think there's been one of the things that about the debate that's been troubling to me, too, is and it, I think it happened before, was happening before the current uh, polarization in our political debate is the dialogue pitting uh, small rural community residents uh, or family farmers against, you know, like I say, the people on the coasts. Yes. I've, you know, I've recently had people that I grew up with because I now live on the East Coast. Oh, you, you people on the coast don't understand our problems. And you know, I've always felt that it's really an economic issue, and people, regardless of where they live, if sometimes face the same economic distress. And so there are people in on the East Coast, the West Coast, the South Coast, uh, on the Gulf of Mexico, that face some of the same economic challenges that small family farmers face and that rural communities face. But there's been this uh, for years, like I said, it predates the current effort to polarize us that well you you know you city people don't understand rural people right yes i hear that as well let me take one break because we're halfway through and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us you're tuned into food sleuth radio we are joined by mr robert martin he is director of the food system policy program at johns hopkins university center for a livable future he's based in baltimore maryland however he has worked nationally and he has been involved in the excellent report that came out of the Pew Environment Group. It was titled, Putting Meat on the Table, Industrial Farm Animal Production in America. And this is really your focus these days at the center, where you're looking at policies and how those agricultural policies influence the food on our table. If you could change farm policy, if, you know, if you had the magic wand and you had the power to go in and restructure the way we reward farmers and the way we educate people about the food system, what would you tackle first from a policy standpoint? Well, that's a very good question. I think and it's it's not really directly related to animal production, but crop production and animal production is interrelated. I think I would change the way we support crop production away from a volume-based structure to more of a, a price-based structure. So it's not, well, let's produce everything we, we possibly can, even if it's hard on the land and hard on the water and environment, that we hope we can make some money on dumping it into an export market. Well, let's actually get paid for what we produce. And I think there are systems that could be put in place, subsidy systems that would encourage uh, more conservation-oriented farm policy and programs, worrying more about programs that would build up the soil, that would reward producers for actually building up the soil, a system of subsidies or, or support structures that would 
reward those people that have a more diversified crop system, a rotational system that would reintegrate the animals. And so I think it, I think the core of it would be really uh, how we support crop production and which crops we support. Right. Yeah. After learning more about agriculture policies and how they connect to public health, I know when I drive through farmland today and I see a farm where the the ground is exposed, for example, I think, oh my gosh, we've got to get some cover crops on that. But I've only really learned that by going to agricultural conferences and learning from people who are thinking outside the box and brave enough to buck the system and say, no, I think it's better for us to really focus on regenerative agriculture. And if only, as you say, we could reward farmers for those kinds of behaviors and push those activities through our land-grant system? Because my question is, you know, where do people learn about alternative methods? And how do we teach them to be good citizen advocates within the farm policy arena? Well, I think one of the hopeful things that is happening, a lot of farmers are learning from one another through uh, internet groups. There are groups that, like the Rodale Institute, that has been uh, doing research on regenerative agriculture for decades. There are, it's a worldwide, I think, rebirth of interest in in this type of system. There's a a fairly well-known large producer in North Dakota named Gabe Brown that, that is very, you know, popular in internet circles, disseminating information he has, he's learned through practice. He's, I think, late 60s, maybe 70. There's some farm organizations, like one I used to be affiliated with, Farmers Union, that younger farmers are being attracted to the Farmers Union now because they're talking more about soil health, farm programs based on regenerative agricultural practices. And there's there's many, many, many examples of producers that have been doing this successfully and and making money and uh, revitalizing the soil and protecting the natural resources. There's a, a friend of mine, Kevin Fulton, in western Nebraska, who raises corn and soybeans, organic soybeans and corn, and he raises cattle. There's a very well-known man in um, in Georgia named Will Harris, whose his uh, farm has been fairly large. I think it's couple thousand acres has been carbon neutral for about 20 years. Mm. And so these guys are, these people are getting kind of traction with the ease of modern communication and the internet. But there, I, I think to, to really, you know, put a booster rocket on it, I, I'm hoping that some of the land grants will start to see that soil health is key. Yeah. I agree. Soil seems to be, even through the public health lens, really key to our own personal health. So it's a beautiful relationship, and I think hopefully in the future we'll see more research in that area. I am, like you, concerned about antibiotic resistance, and I was so glad to see the APHA, American Public Health Association, come out with concerns in this arena. We spoke about farming communities connecting the dots with what's going on with the industrialization of farming and the demise of their economics. Do you think or do you see changes in the public health community, say in hospitals, 
recognizing that, oh my goodness, we're seeing a rise in antibiotic-resistant infections. How many physicians do you think recognize the relationship between what goes on in the farm and in rural communities to what they see on the ward? Well, I think that in the past 10 years, there's been a, uh, an important growth in the awareness of medical, clinical people uh, understanding what goes on in the community does impact what they're seeing in the clinical setting. And, I mean, beyond just uh, viral spreads and that sort of thing, I think it's really growing significantly. There's a group called Healthcare Without Harm that was established, I think, about 20 years ago, really concerned about location of where medical waste incineration sites are located. And they've taken up the concern about antibiotic resistance and its relation to the agricultural sector pretty aggressively in the last two or three years. It's very interesting. We had on the Pew Commission a physician, well-known physician on the Harvard Medical School faculty, uh, Dr. Mary Wilson, and she was talking about, she'd been part of trying to limit antibiotic use, inappropriate antibiotic use in the clinical setting starting in the 1970s, late 1970s, and talked about really the progress they felt they were making from the clinical side in the, through the AMA and different groups, encouraging the FDA to limit drugs. And then the industry stepped in, the animal ag industry in particular stepped in, and the Veterinary Medical Association stepped in to say, oh, no, wait a minute, you're not going to take away our right to use antibiotics. So I think there's a hardcore group of physicians that have known about the link for a while, but I think that that knowledge, as and as more and more research comes out, linking the spread of antibiotic-resistant MRSA, for example, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus from swine operations in North Carolina out into the community or uh, witnessing uh, there have been genome sequencing of urinary tract infections linked to resistant E. coli that has been picked up from poultry consumption. So the mounting evidence is there. And one of the really great things, I think, about the APHA statement was in 2003, the first one was, it was kind of a precautionary statement. You know, we think there's some problems here. We don't really know. And the statement that was passed in November of 2019 was much stronger. Yeah, because the evidence is so strong now, and it's really irrefutable that there's a direct link between misuse of antibiotics in food animals and human-resistant infections. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many people would be surprised to learn that close to 90% of the meat that is served in institutions, in restaurants, in hospitals, in schools, that we go to the supermarket and buy actually comes from this industrial system. I think it would shock people. I think that it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. I think the the misappropriation of the images and language of sustainable family farms that the industry uses to promote this industrial product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I consider myself to be very lucky in that I live close enough to farmers who have livestock, small-scale, true family farms who I can buy direct from the farmer. I realize that that is a luxury, but I don't know how we move the dial to make that 
more commonplace. I think the growth certainly of farmers markets has made it easier for people if they're looking for an alternative. Do you have these conversations very often with people in the community about how we can expand this direct farmer to consumer system or how we can chip away at that industrial system? Yeah, we do a couple of things at the center. In addition to the policy program I lead and the polling we do to understand public opinion, we have a, a program called Food Communities and Public Health, and that program works with food policy councils around the country. I think there's about 360 of them in the United States and Canada. Some of them are community food policy councils. Some of them are countywide, and a couple are even statewide food policy councils. And as a matter of fact, I, there's a pretty well, strong, developed one just next door to you in Kansas, and they're very keenly aware of, of this link, and I think there there's kind of a, of a policy awakening, or maybe that's not quite the right term. Maybe it's a politi- political activization that they are, they're understanding that they need to be not only active in promoting policies, but communicating also with politicians about how to change the system. You know, we didn't get here overnight. I mean, the the escalation towards the system that we now have and we're dealing with the consequences of really started in the mid-1950s. And it keeps picking up intensity as, again, I think the economic power of the industry continues to grow. And it is a logical statement, oh, we need to produce food this way to feed the world. And you have to look through that kind of that thin shield of rhetoric, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I always encourage people to question, you know, where does their food come from and what alternatives do I have? And that's a good place to start to think about, okay, how can we restructure the way we eat and then move to the policies to support the kind of food system that we want? We only have a minute or so left, and I want to put the ball in your court. Are there issues that you absolutely want our listeners to know, messages that you hoped you would get across to our consumer audience? Well, I think the continued misuse of antibiotics in food animals should really frighten everyone. I think the degradation of surface water and groundwater should be a serious concern to all your listeners. And there's a direct link in the concentration of these operations and the huge volumes of waste they produce and really the inappropriate means of disposal. There's lots of nitrogen pollution in in surface waters in the country. There's a growing problem with nitrogen pollution in groundwater where these operations are located, which leads to things like some links to some types of cancer like thyroid cancer, blue baby syndrome. There's phosphorus overloading in the soil, which deteriorates long-term productivity. So I think what you said just a minute ago is is really a strong message. Ask questions. Think about where your food comes from. And you vote with your food dollars three times a day, so it's a pretty powerful tool. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much, Mr. Martin, for being with me. I cannot recommend the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future enough. 
for any of our listeners who want to learn more and to keep up. Mr. Martin, you are a wonderful writer. You have several publications and editorials that people can read to learn more. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Robert Martin, Director of the Food System Policy Program at Johns Hopkins University Center for a Livable Future. I will provide a link to your excellent site. And thank you again for helping to inform us all about a more safe and humane food system. Thank you, Melinda.